please note, every episode is someone's individual experience. One data point is not representative of everyone's time in the Air Force. Do your due diligence. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or its components. Welcome to another episode of the AFSC series, a part of the For the Zoomies podcast, and I'm your host, Andrew Cormier. Today's guest is a 2005 Air Force Academy graduate who went on to fly the U-28. He has been deployed 12 times throughout various areas of responsibility in the Middle East, accumulating just about 2,700 combat flight hours. He was hand-selected to take part in the in the first weapons instructor course class for the U-28A and held the qualifications of evaluator, pilot, and weapons officer in that platform. He is currently a mathematics instructor at the Air Force Academy. Ladies and gentlemen, Lieutenant Colonel Phil Miller. Thanks for having me. Uh, we were talking a little bit about this before, but you are the third U-28 pilot to be on this show. <laughs> but to not be too redundant, we are going to be diving into something a little bit more... Um, a little bit more cadet-oriented of decision-making and kind of learning about life rather than the U-28 specifically. Obviously, we're going to tie some stories in about it as well. But I guess to jump right into it, can you uh, give some background about what brought you to the academy? Sure. So uh, I grew up um, with a stepbrother um, in Northern California and probably back 2000. Uh, I'll go back even further, 1999. I didn't know anything about the Air Force Academy. Uh, what I know now is I was the second guy to go from my high school in Northern California here. Um, I knew I wanted to fly, um, but I didn't know how to get there. Uh, so the Academy wasn't on the radar. And then uh, junior year, um, through a family friend who was a one-star Air Force general, he said, you got to apply. And I'm like, okay, sure. So I applied uh, to the Air Force Academy. I didn't apply to any of the other service academies. Um, USC and a handful of, of programs under really the, the premise of I wanted to fly. Mm -hmm. uh, my ideas of service at that time, I'll, I'll admittedly say, were a little immature and not quite as developed as they were when, once I got here. Um, I actually didn't get in. Uh, I was going uh, on a ROTC, you know, part-time scholarship um, to USC, and I was pretty excited about that. Um, and then about a week or two before basic started, I got a letter saying, hey, you know, you're next in line. You want to oh, come? Um, and it's funny. Like, I, I didn't even think about it. I just uh, I got on a plane with my dad and came out here and hopped on the bus like everyone does. And, <laughs> and then four years went by. Um, yeah. And, and I, I stuck with my, my dream of, of, of being an aviator and, and was lucky enough to get a pilot spot. But, but I found myself here. And, and, I, and I have a, a fond memory of being a firstie out there. Uh, I watched you all march in today. <laughs> um, from my window here, and I remember sitting there, uh, probably April time frame, senior year, marching in, probably somewhere in the front of the formation as a flight commander or something, I don't remember, but just thinking like, wow, I can't believe four, four years went by that fast, so he'll, mm. be, he'll be there soon. <laughs> can't come soon enough. <laughs> it's interesting, I hear, I talk to a lot of people that don't get in their first time. I'd say at least half the people that I interview, I mean, I haven't got it, I didn't get in my first try. Um, didn't get in initially and were either waitlisted or had to apply again. So it's interesting to see that, you know, just because you don't get in your first try does not directly correlate to like, hey, you're you're doomed. You're, yeah, and your success here or how um, how you'll struggle or not struggle here, I don't think there's any correlation. It's, it is weird. Yeah. Um, so today's episode is going to be a little different as um, this story is something I'm sure many cadets can relate to, especially since firsties are looking forward to getting their jobs this Friday. Um, GPA, MPA, and PA are, are incentives because they help us get what job we want. You know, the higher on the OML you are, the more likely you are to get the job you want. The same is true for pilot training, to my understanding. Um, the better scored pilots get to choose their airframe. This means that this means that there's a chance that you might fly U-28s when you wanted fighters, and this is the case for you. Um, but this is a reality allowed you to see what there is beyond fighter pilots. And there's so much more to aviation than what, um, a lot of cadets aspire to be as cadets flying something fast and pointy. So, um, do you think you could take us through your experience at pilot training and how you performed? 
Yeah, sure. Um, and let me caveat this, I, I guess now, and, and this applies for the, the whole podcast, but right, my experiences are from what you know, I saw in the last 20 years of my career, I think um, most of them hold true today. So how we were rack and stacked in pilot training out of the academy. Um, and I have done a little bit of research to confirm that, but some things change. Mm-hmm. Um, and for those listening, you know, maybe you're a freshman that aren't going to be in UBT for five or six years from now, you know, there's a chance that, that things will change. But for me at UBT, um, and I tell all my, my cadets in my math class this, like it was the first time um, no kidding in my life that I felt like I struggled. Um, the academy was was challenging, basic was challenging, academics here were challenging, um, but I got into a rhythm like most of us do and, and I found it enjoyable and, and I, I wouldn't say I, I struggled. Um, UPT was the kind of my awakening and it was a humbling experience. Um, and I, I think the reason for that is at the academy for the most part, you're tested mentally um, you become mentally tough. You, you learn how to take tests. You learn how to study. UPT is the first time where you have to be able to do all that, but you have to combine that with some sort of hand-eye coordination mm. and apply a, a mental capacity to a physical capacity. Um, and when you do those two things, uh, things change. Um, so for me, uh, you know, I, I didn't fail too many check rides or or struggle much more than, than the average person. But I think in general, like it was, it was hard. Um, I don't know exactly, uh, but I went to Shepherd um, after a year at, at grad school up here at CU. Um, and, you know, my study habits, I think were the same here as, as a cadet. Um, but I think I probably finished in the top, um, third but at the bottom of the top third uh, okay. just just based on on order of merit ranking um i uh you know i struggled through a few check rides with a bunch of downgrades um at the time at shepherd uh when i left the academy in 2005 um shepherd was the place that you wanted to go to get a fighter um if you struggled more than average you might get a bomber but you were pretty much guaranteed a fighter if you made it through and, and of course at the time like a, like many cadets I wanted to be a fighter pilot, um, and and so I went there thinking that. Um, based on how I finished, I assumed uh, I was going to get a, a fighter, uh, arrogantly probably, out of UBT um, about a week before our drop night, and at the time it was rank order or merit. Um, you know, put in your dream sheet. We're going to go to the first guy in the order of merit, and if, if he has an F-22 and F-22 is available, you get an F-22. Um, and we go down the list like that. Uh, about a week prior to drop night, uh, we had uh, AETC come out and say, hey, you know, your Shepherd class is going to be a little different than most. Um, you're going to get some some other stuff that aren't fighters, so just brace yourself. A few days after that, uh, the current DO of the U-28 squadron came out to Shepherd and gave us a brief on what the U-28 was, um, and it was awful. Uh, he straight up said, uh, none of us here in the soft community want you, um, AETC and AFPC that, you know, the personnel center are making us take you because we have a manning issue. Um, but just know it's, it's going to be hard on you. Um, just because, you know, soft is built out of expertise and people that have done, you know, things and, and FGOs and, and now we're taking in all these lieutenants. Um, anyway, I left that one, like, well, that's not me. I'm not going to go to U-28s. Um. And then the second thought was like, wow, like that guy was toxic and I don't want to be a part of that anyway. Um, so when I made my, my dream sheet the, the following week, uh, U-28s wasn't on there. Uh, I think I had A-10s first, um, Strike Eagle second, uh, probably Vipers, um, B-1s, um, the two FAPES. Uh, F-22s was told to us that like, hey, unless you're like the magic guy that or gal that can do everything here, you're not going to get F-22s, which you know changed a few years later. Um, but anyway, that was that. I kind of brushed it off like, oh, glad I'm not going to go work for that guy. Um, you know, a week later, drop night comes around, and that morning our, our AMT, sort of like our senior captain who's in charge of the flight, um, came in and said, hey, I got bad news, but um, a lot of you are going to the C-28 thing. And drop night came around, and sure enough, uh, my name came up, and, and I was going to Herbert Field to fly U-28s, and, you know, I was bummed. Um, and, and I took down the stats, but we had 18 people in our class, 
and about six of those 18 uh, were either foreigners um, that knew what they were flying or guards people. Uh, so we had like one guard A-10, I think two guard um, F-16s. And then there was 12, like normal, call it normal, uh, UPT folks that were getting rack and stacked and, and pushed. Six of us went to U-28. So half the wow. class, half the eligible class, if you will, went to U-28. So uh, I wasn't alone. I was going with some friends, but uh, but we all went out and flew U-28s. And, and that's, how I, that's how I ended up there. Why, why did that... Uh that soft guy come out and tell you that they didn't want you when they he knew that you he was gonna get a decent amount of you, like I feel like that's a kind of shitty introduction. I, I don't know. So um, I maintained a relationship. I'm not gonna use his name. Uh, he ended up being a, a general officer, um, and many many years later, uh, I worked a couple echelons below him as a major when he was a general, um, and he, he we were having a beer and he actually un, unprovoked apologized. For that he goes yeah I made a lot of mistakes when I was you know younger and that was one of them um, and, and that wasn't cool mm-hmm. and then I was like wow man that's awesome yeah like it's exactly what you know someone like me at that position in my career wanted to hear um, but I don't know and quite frankly based on that conversation at least over a beer with him I don't I don't think he knew either he probably thought he was being cool or doing something uh, right by the community um, but what he didn't think about it is how he was making and maybe he didn't know how many of us were going. I don't know. Mm. Um, but he didn't know how it was making you know us feel. Um, and kind of tainting, right? Like tainting our perspective or biasing us against the community before we even got there. So it stuck in my mind. Obviously, it's, it's still in there. Um, but I, I think it ended up all right. Okay. And soft pilots before NJEP, your class, um, like you said, they don't prefer lieutenants. What was their previous source of pilots? So most... Of those communities, at least at the time, and again, you know, I wasn't in the community yet, but looking back at my time in the soft community, we're coming from previous airplanes. So maybe you, you drag some guys and gals out of KC-10s um, or B-2s. Um, our community of U-28s at the time, once I got there, and we had everything, I think, and it was kind of a, a claim to fame, if you will, but the community had everything except, I think, an F-22 pilot, which I, I promise they've had at this point, um, which was cool, right? That... Um, breadth of experience um, or different experiences really lends itself to building a well-rounded community. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's how they typically pulled. They pulled, you know, the gunships would pull from C-130 uh, communities, right? So you already have a bunch of time and experience in a C-130 and now you're adding some guns on the side and, um, you know, you're a more seasoned, experienced air crew than, a, than an LT. And I think the soft community at the time, you know, let's call it back since 9-11, um, appreciated being able to do that. But then when the demand for soft started growing in the you know 2005 to 2015 range, it, they didn't have the option to do it anymore. They, they had to pull manpower from somewhere, and, and the answer, the only answer was UPT. Okay. Um, and, and I think there were other bases, because um, I, I had captains and lieutenants in the community with me um, that were like the first class out of like Laughlin or Vance, um, but we were the first class or at least U-28s out of Shepard. Um, so it wasn't new, but it was clear that the soft community and the U-28 specifically was going to start getting a lot of LTs out of UPT. And, and I don't think that more seasoned aviators were super keen on that idea. Okay. Is that still ring true today? No. Okay, no, so they yeah. went back to their older It's. I, I would argue, at least in, in my experiences, four or five years ago before I, I really kind of got outside of that bubble, um, you know, th- it was commonplace to have folks from UPT, just like a normal squadron okay. at that point, yeah. Gotcha. On to weapons school. Sure. Um, what was your experience in weapons school? Because I've talked to a whole bunch of different airframe pilots, including AFSCs, like I didn't know maintenance had. Um, you could get a patch as a maintenance officer, participate in red flag events, that sort of thing. So where was the U-28s kind of position there? So let me say, like I caveated initially, my experience was probably different than it is now and different from most. Um, and the reason for that is myself, another pilot, and a CISO were the first U-28 class to go through weapons school. Now, there was a group of cadre that stood the course up for the U-28. Um, they went through the year before us, um, but they were the, kind of the cadre class. And that's what made it different. 
uh, for me anyway, and, and the folks I went through, um, because the cadre appreciated our experience um, as U-28 aircrew at the time. And as opposed to some of the other weapons instructor course um, cadre and students, like they leaned on us to help build the course. And it was more of a teamwork kind of thing than them like hazing us okay and just treating us like we were you know nobody aviators um it was funny when we went through just because they kind of came out of the community a year prior to stand the course up we were still we were all about the same experience level in the u28 our cadre were all fighter guys um i think a couple f-16 folks a b1 um a couple yeah, gunship folks, but they were all, you know, experienced folks. And with them taking that year off and us deploying two or three more times in that year, when we actually started weapons school, we actually technically had more U-28 time and combat experience in the cadre, but they appreciated that. Mm-hmm. And when we worked through the TTPs, like we were working through it together and they were learning from us just as much as we were learning from them. So again, I say that to say our experience was a little uh, more gentle than some of the others. Watching some of the other soft um, platforms work through weapon school, like they were definitely having um, a harder time than us just because their cadre were more experienced than them and they were being treated as such. Uh, it wasn't as as a gentleman's or gentleman's program at the time. Um, weapon school is tough. Uh, I won't say as tough as UPT, um, but for me in the platform, um, I was an evaluator, and the other two folks I went through were evaluators too. Um, and there's really nowhere else to go from there, right? And we're all ambitious people, or at least most of us graduating here are. So it's like, all right, where do I go from here? And you really have two paths. Uh, you have TPS or test pilot school, um, and you have weapons instructor course or WIC. Um, test pilot school is like, I want to go be an engineer. This is my opinion, by the way. Test pilots will probably <laughs> give you a, a better opinion. But I want to go be an engineer, um, and I want to go – uh, you know, help build the, the next platform or, or be that person. For me, uh, weapon school was a different track in that, like, I want to be the best combat aviator or technical expert in application of that platform as possible. And for me, that resonated. That's exactly what I wanted to do. I didn't want to do anything that took me out of flying in more combat. And uh, so weapon school, I thought, would keep me in the cockpit longer Um and further that that goal of, of just continuing to fight. Mm-hmm. Um, weapon school was hard um, because the first there's really three phases. The first phase starts out at Nellis, um, and you it's academics. And I remember, uh, hopefully I'm not exaggerating this too much, but you show up for class every morning. I think it was 7 a.m. and you sit through no kidding 12 hours of academics, and it's intense academics, and then. Tuesday rolls around, and we show up, I think it's six. And the first thing you do is you take a one-hour test on everything you learned the day before. <laughs> and I'm thinking like a cadet. I'm like, all right, uh, I got to relate my objectives to my test questions. You know, it's probably going to be a multiple choice. And the first question is like, describe an SA7. Open-ended, <laughs> a big old blank spot. And I'm sitting here scratching my head like, where's the, where's the prompt or the multiple choice or the uh, – Fill in the blank. None of that. And you're Can't just expected that. Yeah. No, you're, you just dump a paragraph of brain bites on a piece of paper. Um, so we did that. Um, I think I got like a 92%. I was stoked. And we got berated for not uh, – the standard was 100. Yeah. And it's like we don't even know like what pieces of information on these, these systems we need to know. Anyway, uh, you did that for like two weeks. Like you study or you learn for 12 hours. You study all night. Um, and then you take a test, and it was open-ended, um, and it was intense. It was fun. Uh, good group of folks I went through with. Um, we made it back to Herbert. So the U-28 and all the soft platforms are something called a geographically separate unit. Um, some of the fighters, uh, you know, they, they stay at Nellis the whole time. We go back to Herbert, and then we'd fly out to Nellis for various events. Um, but the first phase was all about learning your platform and getting as smart as you could, in our case, on how to implement the weapon system of the U-28 in combat, um, which was awesome. Uh, it was taking the knowledge that we had just being a you know, a normal folk in the squadron and, and taking it to the next level. Um, the second phase, we learned how to integrate with like all the other soft platforms and all the other folks that we supported in the soft community, you know, Army, Navy, 
um, other organizations. Um, and then the third part was, you know, going back to Nellis and learning how to integrate with what I'll call the CAF, the combat air forces or the non-SOF uh, forces. Um, and it was awesome. Uh, super great course, highly recommend it six month long. It's competitive like most things in the air force. Um, but I thought it was one of the cooler experiences. Um, and again, my experience is probably a little different than some, some may curse the course and think it was the worst experience <laughs> they had just like, uh, some do at the, at the Academy, but I, I thought it was awesome. Um, you know, being the first couple folks that graduated and were quote unquote patches in the community was a little weird, uh, because they didn't really know what to do with us at the time. Um, so I'm not sure that was quite what I expected. Um, but, but again, no regrets. I had a good time at the course and anyone that wants to do that, I, I highly recommend it. So you would anticipate that anyone that drops U28 and is going through the, the weapons course now is in a more uh, established program where they might be treated a little bit differently? It is. So uh, we graduated in June of 2013. Um, so it's been, it's been a decade. It's yeah. been a decade. So, so yeah, I think they're sending about twice as many. Last I, I checked, about twice as many folks. So we went through a three I think they're sending six through last I, I know, or last I checked, excuse me. Um, and, and it is. I'm sure it's different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we went through when it was run by the U-28 WIC was run by all fighter guys, um, which, again, WIC started as a, a fighter-only course. Um, you know, now I, I'd be willing to assume that a lot of the folks that are the cadre are, are probably U-28 folks and only U-28 folks, not mm-hmm. mixed backgrounds. So. I bet it's different. Yeah. Is there, um, because the last time we talked, the U-28 will be replaced by another airframe. Does that involve a whole another course with new it, capabilities? It, it will. So the best I could do to correlate that is the weapons school at Herbert used to have the, uh, not the 60, I'm, I'm trying to think, the Pablo, sorry, the Pablo as uh, a weapon instructor course program. And then they retired the Pablo and the CV-22 replaced it. And it took, uh, I think, about five years before the new CV-22 WIC came online. And it wasn't even online when I was there. I'm actually making the assumption I should look uh, that it's online now. It it has to be. Um, But I think the Sky Warden, uh, which is fragged to replace the U-28, you know, sometime in the next uh, five to ten years, uh, they will, I'm assuming, do a WIC instructor course. But it'll take some time. It won't be turnkey when the platform's here. The WIC is stood up. Um, At least that hasn't been done that I've seen uh, before. So I'd expect it to take a few years for them to set that up. Okay. Fighter lifestyle versus the soft lifestyle. Um, I think this is where we can really get into how you really enjoyed uh, your time in the U-28 where you initially really just wanted to be a fighter pilot. Do you think you could expand upon that? Yeah. And and let me kind of start with the story. When when you originally approached me with uh, this interview request, um, I hadn't heard of the podcast before. So the first thing I did is I went online and I looked up the podcast, and it was right after you interviewed General Moga. And when you introduced uh, General Moga, just like you did for me, you know, you mentioned his combat experience in time. And not to by any way be little fighter pilots, but it's something that me and my buddies would always joke about in the years, just because of our experience, right? So maybe mm-hmm. the arrogance in us, but as a soft aviator, um, you fly a lot. Um, and in general, it's a generality, but you know, fighter guys fly less. Um, I think if we look statistically, I think the statistics would back that up. Um, but anytime I hear, you know, you know, and it's generational too, a little bit of luck and timing. I'll talk about that in a minute as well. Um, but when you hear uh, a bio or, you know, me and my buddies, when we look up a bio and we see like, like 34 combat hours, you know, back in the day, 20 years ago, that was awesome. I mean, you got to go to combat and fly in combat. That was cool. But just with 9-11 and like the last two decades, um, there was a lot of folks, fighters, non-fighters, soft, mobility, uh, flying in combat. Um, and so I started thinking like, okay, how can I relate what I was hearing General Moga talk about? Um, and then I looked back at some of the other podcasts too, and I'm like, oh, he's already interviewed a couple of U28 folks, so no one really cares about what a U28 does anymore. <laughs> um, but how can I add value to to that? And and what started kind of as a joke of, uh, you know, poor General Moga only has a couple hundred combat hours. And, you know, I say that with a big smile on my face um, because that's awesome in a fighter. Uh, but that's what makes it different. Um, the flying that General Moger or any fighter guy does in combat, no kidding, is probably awesome. Um, and the hours spent in the plane is definitely 
more valuable, if you will, than the six hours I spent on a sortie. But the difference, I think, is the mission. A fighter guy is going to spend, or gal, um, a lot of their time um, training um, and doing alert missions. Um, not to say soft, soft folks don't train, not to say soft folks um, don't sit alert, um, but at least in the U28 community, we knew exactly when we showed up, um, I was going to fly, and I was going to fly as much by regulation as I could um, in combat. Um, and I didn't know at the time. That's why I put fighters first. Uh, but what it ended up being for me is, is a lot of satisfaction knowing that I was going to fly almost every day. And the things I was going to see and do um, were impacting not just you know my crew and my life, but the crews on the ground, um, Army, Navy, um, Air Force. Uh, and it was fun for me. Um, and it's just funny. It's funny to look back. And I actually talked uh, with Colonel Dietz and a couple of the other folks I know um, that are, have fighter backgrounds to kind of validate my, my thoughts. And, and it's just different. It's not to say, by no means am I saying that SOF is, is better, because I, I don't believe that. Um, but I don't think a lot of cadets realize, you know, that decision you make, it's really a new PT, um, to, to pick a platform. You know, they pick what they think, and I did too, um, is going to be cool. Um, and I would argue, and, and uh, Major Hinshaw in the last episode last month, I think it was the 18th of August, said, mm-hmm. um, you need to pick mission. I couldn't agree more. Um, you, you really do. And, and for me, it made a difference in my satisfaction. Not to say I wouldn't be happy uh, if, I was, if I was a fighter dude. Um, but for me personally, like I loved knowing when I was going to fly, flying a lot, and, and impacting some ground folks. Um, so, so that was, that was me. Um, and I don't have any regret with that. And I, let me go back real quick to luck and timing. I don't know what that looks like for your generation. Um, there's still a CT fight. Um, soft is still putting out platforms to fight CT, uh, but it's not what it was. Um, it's not multiple global sites going out there and doing 24 hour orbits to affect some mission set. Uh, there was a time, uh, I would say from about 2008 to 2018, so a decade there, where soft, the soft mission set, and I'm not talking about the air soft mission set, but the soft mission set in general, um, the Green Berets, the SEALs, um, the folks doing the ground mission were the supported force. Um, and we've heard that on the podcast a couple times. But all the fighters, all the soft air assets were all supporting that ground scheme maneuver. Um, and it was awesome to be a soft person in mm-hmm. that fight. Uh, and, and again, awesome to be a, a fighter person building up combat time and supporting that fight as well. Um, but I don't know if 10 years from now it's going to be like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we went to war with a, a big uh, peer nation, you know, soft will have a role but it won't be the role that it was against counterterrorism uh, from 2001 to 2000, you know, now, 2023. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe, you know, again, what mission set do you find sexy and maybe uh, the fighter mission set and up there shooting big long-range missiles at other fast pointy planes uh, becomes the, the sexy mission set of, of your generation. Um, and again, I'm not saying it wasn't in our generation either, but... Um, it kind of brings me into the, the idea of alert versus fragged missions, which I know we talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a lot of friends uh, flying rescue helos. Um, you see it, folks flying Kona Space fighters that are doing you know DV um, support missions. But you sit on the ramp um, in a nice, comfortable air-conditioned container, uh, hoping that the alarm goes off, you run out to your jet, and you have your 30 minutes of, of glory uh, chasing down some Cessna um, or, you know, shooting down some airliner that, that has some bad dudes on it um, to take it to the other side of the spectrum. Um, but you're, you're waiting. Mm-hmm. You're not flying uh, versus the flip side, at least with my experience in SOF, of you come in, you're on a schedule for five days in a row, um, and you're bored, quite frankly. You're sitting in the plane bored, but you're flying. Um, so it's more fun than sitting on the ground, in my opinion. And then maybe on one of those five sorties, something crazy happens and um, and you have a lot of fun, uh, just like the fighter guys and yeah. gals would have in the uh, in the fighter, you know, intercepting 
you know, the airline or not that that incident was fun, but you always want to be part of, the, of those pointy missions and, and some of those folks got to do that for sure. Hey, real quick, hope you're enjoying the episode. If you are, could you do me a favor and follow and leave a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and also follow the show on Instagram at 4.the.zoomies to see clips of upcoming episodes and stay engaged with the community. Thanks for your ongoing support. For cadets out there that are trying to pick the mission over the airframe, it begs the question of, what supports uh, the Pacific Ocean rather than the desert in the Middle East? And that I can sort tell of you thing. the U twenty eight does not support the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> um, we uh, we tried in the U twenty eight to do some missions out in in Africa, and, and I say tried uh, only because it's just such a big continent, and um, I'm a little prop plane, right? Yeah, guess it, it doesn't go real far. So same thing in the Pacific. It's not to say we can't be involved in the in the Pacific, but it's uh, it's capabilities limited. Um, where you get a plane like an F twenty two or um, some of these these fighters that can go real far, real fast, and most importantly refuel, um, and their capabilities over there are going to be much much superior to ours. And when we're talking ISR, right? Because that's what the U twenty eight is. There's other planes like the U two and, and some other stuff that are going to far exceed um, a soft ISR planes capabilities in, in the Pacific not saying it won't play um, just saying that that it wasn't built for that AO it was, it was yeah. built for um, the CT fight in the Middle East for sure and all is that to say that you went into pilot training wanting the F-22 or the Viper or the Strike Eagle you went in hoping for something fast and pointy you didn't get it but despite that you had some sort of revelation or epiphany that, hey, that wasn't really what I wanted in the first place. It was like the illusion of what I wanted. But what I actually want is, I mean, it's kind of biased because like if you have that experience and you really enjoy it, you're like, oh, maybe I did want this from the beginning. But it sounds as though you did really enjoy your time in U-28. 100%. Uh, I get asked from the cadets every once in a while, sir, would you trade you know, the U-28 for something now. And I joke and I say, yes, but only in Apache. Um, and I only say that because, one, I think it's it's funny because that's not really realistic unless you cross commission. But um, but watching what the Apaches do in combat is also pretty eye-opening. Um, but, but no, I, I wouldn't. Um, but to your last point, I think we are kind of biased. And I think we tell ourselves what we, we want to hear and think to support our own ideas of what I fly is, is the best thing ever. And, and I do recognize that, that, that we all do that. Um, but for me, when I started flying, you know, I was a captain. Like all this, you know, combat time and total time and all this stuff, which is a nice, you know, pretty figure for all of us that we tout. But, I mean, that was all done as a captain. I haven't really done much. I, I think I calculated. I think I did flown like 200 hours as an FGO, so a major and a lieutenant colonel. Mm. Um, but for me, when I was a captain, and it's funny listening to – to Major Henshaw's comments on her podcast uh, right before this, um, she actually said that she, you know, it was hard for her because she didn't like the ops tempo. Different strokes for different folks. I loved it. Like, mm. I think I enjoyed the community the most because of the ops tempo. Um, now, I was single, no kids at the time, but I just wanted to deploy more and more and more. I never wanted to come home. Um, I just was so addicted to the experiences in combat and the impact that we were having for the ground forces and to the, you know, the global mission. I, I don't know why I am even action junk. I'm not sure, <laughs> but for me it was fun and, and that's all I wanted to do. But I a hundred percent acknowledge that there was many in the community um, and not just our community, but soft community at large. I mean, that's the downside. Um, it's really cool to fly a lot, but some folks don't like flying as much as others. And some people would rather be home. If you're a soft person, you're going to be gone a lot. Um, yeah. At the time, I liked it. I'm not convinced with two kids and a wife now. I'd, I'd like it quite as much. But Yeah, I mean, I guess relating it because you're a math teacher, I often like use the term decision calculus. There's just so many factors that go into making a decision beyond what is surface level of like, do I want all this family stuff? And it makes me think of like making some sort of decision matrix and really thinking about what I value and like weighting it with corresponding weights that you know really just brings to to paper something that is like just scrambling around in my brain and it reminds me i think I'll, I'll asterisk it and talk about it later but um 
I don't didn't do it on purpose, uh, but having kids later in life, I think was a good thing because it allowed me as a lieutenant and a captain to really just work my butt off mm. um, and be kind of selfish and focus on the mission and the squadron and enjoying that and not have to balance a family. And again, I, I didn't necessarily choose that. It's just how life worked out for me. But but looking back, I think it enabled me to, to get where I am, wherever that may be. Um, and I don't regret it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Before we spoke, you, you wanted to bring up a story about um, flying and intuition with some of your co-pilots and uh, uh, your nav in the back. If you, if you want to indulge yeah. the, the audience with that story. It's, it's a story I told to the cadets in math class when I'm not teaching math, uh, which I think they appreciate sometimes. <laughs> but uh, it's a story that took place, I can't remember the year, maybe 2016. Um, I was out in Afghanistan. Um, and it's a it's an interesting story to me because it, it involves a topic that's not talked a lot about um, in combat, and it's crew resource management, or, or CRM for short. But we're on a mission supporting um, some ground folk uh, way out east on the Afghanistan border, um, and we're just following this this guy around town in a car, um, talking with the ground folks, making sure that, that the combined team didn't lose them. Super fun mission. There was really low clouds that day, um, and we were flying below the clouds because that's something we were comfortable doing because, quite frankly, our plane's pretty slow and pretty safe for the most part. Um, and we were flying down there below the clouds in between the mountains, following this guy. And it was just a fun fun mission. Um, normally, we fly with the autopilot. This story, I was hand flying just because I didn't trust it because we were so close to the mountains. Um, and I just wanted to be more in tune with the plane, if you will. Uh, we said a bingo. A bingo is the fuel you need to, to leave your objective area and get home with the minimum amount of gas required by, by regulation. Um, and that day, uh, we were going to fly all the way up to bingo because that's typically what we did. There wasn't a plane coming in behind us to, to backfill, so we were trying to give everything we had to the ground force. Um, and about 10 minutes prior to us leaving station, uh, on another fires radio we had, we heard a ground team. Um, starting to take contact from from some bad guys, and they were trying to get a hold of a two ship of Vipers, which are above the clouds. Um, and the Viper guys will hate me for saying this, but sometimes their radios don't always work the best. Um, <laughs> and they were having trouble just getting in contact with them. And one of the things we did in the U twenty eight is we'd relay radio calls, so uh, we were able to get the ground team in touch with the two ship of Vipers. And and what the result of that conversation was was the Vipers weren't going to be able to come down below the clouds to. Uh, to drop bombs on the bad guys and help the Eagles just because of how low the clouds were, which, again, we, we were already below at that point. Um, so, of course, the ground team looked to us um, and said, hey, you know, U-28 crew, what can you do to, to help? And they're like, can you do a low approach and punch flares? And I'm like, that's yeah, not going to happen. We're too slow. We'll get shot up. <laughs> um, you know, can you do some other fun stuff? And we're like, nah, we're not doing any of that. Um, but we had this new this new thing on the planet one time. Uh, we called it the green beam, but it was a visible laser. It was like a big laser pointer. Um, <laughs> and, and luckily, I can't remember which one of us on the crew had the idea, uh, but one of us was like, hey, you know, let's use the, the green beam. And so we, we found the good guys. Um, we clearly saw the bad guys and the fire they were taking on the other side of a road. Uh, we could see they were pinned down, and, and sure enough, we fired this green laser on the bad guys, um, and the bad guys ran away. Yeah, good guys were happy and said, "Hey, thanks." Uh, we flew about ten minutes past our bingo that day, but we, we felt Wait, like it was justified. Quick, quick question: That green beam is that like a, like the 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 enemies were just scared that they were going to get a bomb dropped on them because that was some sort of laser indicating where we, the bomb would drop. Or we, we we used the green beam in in many ways. I won't get into the specifics, um, but needless to say, they were scared. Um, <laughs> okay. So so yeah, they they were scared and, and they. They departed their location enough to allow the good guys to get away. Um, you know, the crew and I f- felt good that we did good that day. Um, and we started flying home, and uh, it's where it got interesting. We, we climbed back into the, the weather, got a bunch of icing, which is pretty common out there. Um, and we were about 30 minutes away from Bagram. And, uh, and we get this ding, and we look down, and, uh, and we got a fuel quantity light that came on. And, and we get that on occasion, but this was way too soon to get it. And I look, um, and one of my tanks was showing empty. And the other one, I think, was showing 90 pounds of gas, or about 20 minutes of gas. Not enough to get home. Definitely not enough to get home safely. 
Um, and this is, you know, as we spoke, this is where kind of like the training we do here at the academy, um, the training we do at UPT, um, and just the pressure we deal with that we don't like as cadets or as lieutenants going through UPT kind of pays off is, is you get trained, trained, uh, you know, turn, climb, clean, check, um, and do these, these things. And when something happens, if you've been paying attention to training, at least on this day for us, like we just, we did that. Uh, we headed towards a divert base, which was JBAD. Um, I'd never been to JBAD before. Uh, my co-pilot hadn't. My CISO hadn't. Um, my CISO uh, was a you know, navigator. We call him CISOs. But uh, he was a nav. Um, but he was a weird nav in that he owned two airplanes um, <laughs> and, uh, and was a pilot in the FAA's eyes, just not the Air Force's. Um, my co-pilot uh, was actually uh, a guy that I owned an airplane with. Um, that I kind of had, I don't want to say bad blood with, but um, I don't know. I, I didn't look up to him as much. Um, I actually did look up to my CISO a good amount, and that's kind of where our CRM nightmare occurred. Um, as we were heading in that night, it was dark. We were on night vision goggles. We were heading into JBAD. Uh, I couldn't find it. Um, we got below the weather again. We've already declared an emergency at this point. Uh, when we got about 10 miles away, we were showing about 40 pounds. Um, so, I mean, that's a negligent or negligent sorry a negligible amount of fuel um so i told the crew like hey our engine's gonna quit at any minute here get ready um the good news is the pc-12 is a great glider um, <laughs> and we practice it quite a bit um so we're coming in and i can't find it i'm expecting the engine quit at any minute uh and my co-pilot says hey phil i see it but again i have this bias um this preconceived bias because of my previous experiences with this co-pilot. And again, I own an airplane with this person. Um, and I don't believe him. And my CISO in the back, uh, who's also a pilot, um, that I trust says, nah, Phil, it's, it's five miles in front of us. Don't, don't listen to him. And so I'm biased towards him because I want to believe him. But my co-pilot's like so convinced that he sees it. I can't see it yet, obviously. And I say, you know, name. All right, man, I trust you. But if, but if you're wrong, you know, it's going to be a painful lesson. And uh, anyway, so I blindly come through a final turn. We're doing a, a simulated engine out pattern just in case because we were assuming it was going to lose the, the motor. Um, we go down there. We land. Um, he was right. Uh, my CISO in this case was wrong. Um, the instrumentation my CISO was looking at in the back was just off. There was an error in it. Um, and, the, and the eyeballs that my co-pilot was using were, were accurate in this case. Uh, we landed. It landed a little funny. And, and what it ended up being is one of our fuel lines iced up. It transferred all the gas into the other tank, and that other tank's indicator was also malfunctioning. So we had all the fuel we should have had, which was about an hour's worth, but it was all in one tank, and we didn't know it huh. until we landed. Um, so it was it's super interesting. Uh, it was a fun day out there flying and, and doing some good, but then to end it with an emergency like that, um, it was fun. It was definitely one of the more memorable, memorable stories I had. Um, and the CRM aspect at the end, I think, just makes it kind of a fun story because I, I'd never had another time like that where I had such an interesting crew dynamic where I couldn't trust or I didn't want to trust one member over the other. So it was fun. It was humbling. Yeah, I think that's a good story of because, I mean, I feel like that sort of situation happens almost all the time where what we want to do usually disagrees with somebody that we're working with closely. And, you know, there's plenty of people that cadets don't like within the cadet wing but we're ultimately going to be forced to work with them. So it really comes down to what's right rather than what we want to do. And I think that you have a great story of highlighting that. And I won't say it's a skill, but it's something as an officer that, that we're all going to have to learn. We're never probably going to be perfect at. Um, but like you said, you're going to have to learn and to work with people that, that you work well with, but also people that maybe you don't work well with. Because mm -hmm. you're still going to work with them. Yeah. And also, um, you mentioned beforehand, if you're, if you're uh, willing to mention your story about um, being fired as a commander, yeah. that's something that you're willing to share. I think it's very valuable to learn lessons in people being vulnerable to share their failures so that we don't make the same ones. Yeah, sure. I'll share that, sure. Um, and, and the only reason I'm willing is I don't, th I don't think it's very common. And, and if it is common, I don't know about it, which means people are unwilling to talk about it. Um, this happened... Uh, the deployment after that, I believe. But uh, I was in command at it at an Afghanistan again. Um, I had about 30 folks underneath me. Um, I was separated from the home station commander, uh, who was no five at the time. I was a major. 
Um, and I was in charge. I was on G-Series orders in charge of uh, this group of people, a handful of planes, a handful of maintainers. Um, it was one of the probably the coolest command experience of my life. It was it was awesome, um, and we were getting after it. Uh, I was trained by you know some of the initial cadre in the U twenty eight community, and and back in two thousand five to two thousand ten, the community was just fangs out. Um, not to say they're not now, um, but I will say that the culture has definitely shifted. Um, to one that arguably is probably better, um, we probably risked more than we needed to in, in the initial decade of the platform. Um, and I think I, I won't say fell victim, but I fell into that trap on this deployment um, because I, now that I was in charge, I wanted to be like, like the old folks were and just leave it all on the line and, and do everything I could to support the ground crew. And that was kind of my you know, that was kind of my weakness that, that ended up getting me in trouble at this point. So we were out there, we were, we were doing great things. I think I was out there for about two months of a three-month deployment. Um, you know, every couple of weeks or whenever we were required to, I'd reach back to the home station commander who was also deployed at a different site, um, let that person know what was going on. Uh, and then one day, you know, we were doing a sortie. Um, something happened on that sortie that was out of everyone's control. Uh, wasn't a big deal. Um, but anytime something that that's supposed to work, doesn't work, you know, leadership gets involved and, and, and asks questions on, on why. And on this particular sortie, um, the crew uh, that, was, that was out doing the mission was flying low, um, lower than normal um, because there was clouds and because the target we were going after, um, you know, we wanted. Uh, and, and that brought some scrutiny to me and my leadership style um, that at the time for me was was fairly unwelcome, um, but you know, looking back in hindsight, likely warranted, um, because why was I as the commander risking my crews um, being low uh, again, not out of regulation low, but just lower than some would perceive as needed based on the mission we were doing. Um, so bottom line, I I couldn't really answer that mail. Um, you know, in my head, what I was thinking is why not. You know, we're doing the mission. Let's keep getting after it. Um, and what I was failing to see at the time was, you know, balancing that risk to force and risk to mission that, you know, my boss uh, ultimately was thinking about. Um, so needless to say, uh, you know, the common phrase that I think you read in the papers and stuff is is uh, my boss at the time lost faith in my, my leadership abilities. Um, so I got a nice uh, plane ride home. To, uh, to the States where I sat for a couple months uh, reflecting on that. Um, yeah, and it, it, it still stings me a little bit to today. It's probably the hardest thing that's happened to me in my Air Force career. Um, but, but here's the deal. I'm still here. I still pinned on 05. Uh, I actually still went to school after that incident. Um, you know, did it affect my trajectory as an Air Force officer? I think so. Um, but it wasn't detrimental. Um, it probably didn't affect it that much. Um, and the fact that I was there and had the opportunity to learn those hard lessons um, and still and still progress, I, I'm grateful for that. Um, but it was a hard lesson to learn, for sure. Mm. Uh, and, and again, it's still, still something I think about on occasion. So, Well, I, yeah, I appreciate your vulnerability yeah. in sharing that because it's not easy to share big failures. But like I said before, I think it's useful for cadets to understand where the line is by understanding other people's experiences yeah. and now that happened in the past. So uh, by way of rounding out this episode, um, do you have any advice for cadets, something that's usually not heard by a lot of people or anyone that's kind of considering uh, going down a similar path that you have? Yeah, I have three, and, and some of them will even tie back into what we've talked to. But the first advice I'd say is when you graduate here and you're a second lieutenant, work your butt off. Um, your focus, if you're an aviator, should be on flying, being the best pilot, nav, et cetera, that you can be. Um, do that. Focus on that. Yes, you're going to have additional jobs like Snacko, <laughs> but, but be a master at your craft first. Um, what that's going to do is, is number two, keep as many doors open as possible um, and working your butt off early on I think does that for you um, 
in the Air Force or any service, you're going to be limited on things you can control anyway. That's just part of the service, and that's not a bad thing. But when you do have opportunities, what you want to be able to do is say yes to them, and you're going to be able to keep those doors open and say yes um, by working your butt off. Um, if that makes sense. Any mm-hmm. questions on, on that? No, that makes sense. Um, and then the third one I kind of hit, or you, you teased out of me going in. Um, if you can um, in your life, if, if you can wait and, you know, get married, have kids a little bit later, I think it allows you to work your butt off as a lieutenant a little more. Not saying in any way that you can't be married and have kids and work your butt off as a lieutenant, but it allows you to be a little more selfish and take care of your goals versus having to balance a family. Um, again, it worked for me. Um, some people might be miserable doing that and want a family day one, 100% get it. Um, but again, it also allows you to keep those doors open uh, a little bit later. Um, and you don't have to say no to deployment because because you want to be home for a birthday because there's no birthdays to worry about. <laughs> um, but yeah, again, that, that might not resonate with some, but uh, but some it may uh, as, as some advice there. But work your butt off. It's it's a fun ride as an LT. LT. I, I miss it a little bit at times. So. Yeah, it is kind of weird as a 25er, like two dig, seeing classmates of mine uh, getting engaged right now. It's like holy crap, life is moving fast. Which and again, I I'm, I feel kind of bad mentioning that, but you know your classmates they're likely getting engaged. I'm guessing to to other academy folks. Um, they're going to understand. They're going to be able to empathize. So there's a balance there, right? If you're marrying someone who is going to have the same experiences as you and have to make the same sacrifices for deployments and stuff, they're going to get it. Yeah. Um, it's when you're, you're taking more risk uh, by marrying someone that doesn't understand exactly what a deployment is. Um, not to say it happens all the time. You can 100% do it. It's just more challenging sometimes, Yeah. Um, at least what I saw. So. Again, I'm not, I'm not saying one's better than the other. I just I have no regrets having a three and a five year old and not having to worry a whole bunch about deploying right now. Uh, although I I miss deploying sitting here at yeah. my desk reminiscing on it. Yeah. Well, um, it was great talking to you. Before we log off, I do have to give a shout out to Dean Park. Uh, he was a dually in my squadron last year who connected me with you and told me to interview you. And good work, Dean. <laughs> I do not regret it at all. So thank he, you. He passed his math class. Yeah. <laughs> Well, sir, thanks for coming on, and um, do you mind if I refer any cadets to you that have questions about U28 or just lifestyle? And... I'd encourage it. Love to, love to What's your room number? Uh, 6188. Up in the math department. Thank you, sir. Yeah.